Many of you have heard of the preacher Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll is a well-known author and preacher in Dallas, Texas, or actually outside of Dallas, Texas. And I was reading this week about the time that he was in the military. He was in the Marines, and he was stationed in Okinawa. And of course, he was married, he had a family, but he had to be away for extended periods of time. And he said every Friday night, a number of the Christians that were in the military would travel on the island of Okinawa to a particular house in order to have a Bible study. And he said on the way, one of the things that he had to battle with as he was driving to this particular house was the temptation of prostitutes. He said to the right and to the left, he said there were an abundance of bars and brothels. And being separated from his wife for an extended period of time, he said on the way, his Bible study leader gave him the advice, when you travel here, make sure you don't turn to the right or to the left. You don't look to the right or to the left. You keep your focus. And of course, that's what he did. How about you? Do you battle temptation in your life? We all do. If I was to ask you, what are the top three temptations that you deal with on a weekly basis, what would you say? Well, that's what I want to deal with this morning is the subject of temptation as we are going through James verse by verse. So I invite you to turn to James chapter 1, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 18, and the title of this message is How to Flee from temptation. Now remember last week, John in verses 2 through 12 of chapter 1 dealt with the subject of trials. The Christians to whom James is writing to, they were Jewish. They were being oppressed for their faith. The rich were taking advantage of them, according to chapter 5, were not paying their wages. And many of them were suffering. And so in verses 2 through 12, he talks about how to deal with temptation. Now he's going to shift gears, and in verses 13 through 18, he's going to be dealing with the subject of temptation. He goes from the outward, which is trials, to the inward, which is temptations. You see, trials we endure, temptations we are to resist. Now you say, what's the connection between the trials he talks about in verses 2 through 12 Why does he introduce temptation in verse 13? What is the connection between trials and temptations? It's simply this. Trials can become temptations in our life. In fact, the word for trial in verse 2 and the word temptation in verse 13 is the same Greek word parasmas. Why does he use the same Greek word? Here's the reason why. It's because trials can become temptations if we allow them to. How I respond to the trials or the tests that come in my life (coughs) will determine whether or not they become temptations. For example, this week I watched the movie I Still Believe. John mentioned it last week. If you haven't seen it, Jeremy Camp, it's about his life, particularly his marriage when he was in college. And of course, not to be a movie spoiler, but his wife ends up dying at a young age. And after we watched the movie, we actually watched a separate interview with Jeremy Camp and his new wife. 
And he talked about the emotions of what he went through when he lost his first wife to cancer. He said, that was a test in my life, no doubt about it. But that test became a temptation, and here's why. He internalized it, and he began to doubt God. He began to wrestle with God, like most of us probably would. And so that trial turned into a temptation. So that's why James here, on the heels of talking about how to respond to difficulty, is now going to talk about temptation. And what he's going to do is give us several principles as to how you and I can deal with temptation in our life. Let me give these principles to you. There are five of them. The first one is expect to be tempted. Expect to be tempted. Notice, if you will, verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. Notice James doesn't say if you're going to be tempted. He says when you are going to be tempted. Temptation is an inevitable part of life. In fact, if you're human and you're breathing, you're going to be tempted. It is a universal problem that all of us deal with because we are human. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. It is a universal phenomena that we all deal with. Now, all of us are tempted in a general way, and most of our temptations are probably the same. We all battle lust. We all battle pride. We all battle greed. We all battle selfishness. We battle worry and fear. We battle anger, a critical spirit. We all have to wrestle with those things generally. But we all also have unique temptations that are basically unique to our personalities and our bents. I remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors was talking about this topic, and he said one of his female students, one of her temptations was shoes. And everybody looked at him, and he thought, what's wrong with shoes? They're not sinful. This girl had a desire to buy shoes all the time to where she probably had 200 pair of shoes. It was an obsession for her. Now, for most of us, that's probably not an issue, especially us men. Although I knew a guy that loved sneakers. He had 200 pairs of sneakers. He was obsessed with it. See, we all have our unique struggles and our unique banks. And so James says here, expect temptation, not if you are tempted, but when you are tempted. And you see, when I know that I'm going to be tempted, that's going to cause me to be on guard. That's going to cause me to be alert. I'm not going to be spiritually lulled to sleep. Now, since I'm going to be tempted and since it's expected, when am I more temptable? If I know it's coming, when do I tend to be more temptable? What are some of the triggers that lead to greater temptation? Here are some of them. When I'm promoted to some position of power or prominence. We see this with King David or Joseph. When you get promoted, often that can cause temptation. When I'm blessed materially, and we're all blessed in America, material blessing can often produce greater temptation. How about this one? We can all identify with this one. I can expect to be tempted when my personal needs are not met. Do you remember when the devil tempted Jesus when he was fasting? What did he say? Turn these stones into bread. Why? Because he had a need for food. When I'm lonely, when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, 
when I'm bored, when I'm sexually stimulated, or I have an inordinate desire for approval, attention, or affection. You see, when needs are not being met in my life, I am more likely to fall into temptation. When I'm situated in an ungodly environment with ungodly people, maybe some of you work in that environment, and you're surrounded by filth all day, people that are foul-mouthed, Sometimes certain environments that we often can't get out of can be conducive to greater temptation. When I'm angry or I've been wronged by somebody, I'm going to be more tempted. How about this one? When I go through a major transition in my life, a death of a loved one, divorce, having children, moving or a loss of possessions can create greater temptation. I can expect temptation when I listen to my own press clippings or the praises of other people. And then a final one, and there's probably more, but when you are disconnected from the normal routines of life, the normal patterns, or for example, if you are isolated, let's say you have to do road trips for your job. You see, when you're isolated, when you get out of your normal routine, it can often open the door to temptation. And so the first principle is you got to expect temptation. And I think all of us know that we're going to be tempted. In fact, prior to being a Christian, temptation came naturally to you, and most of the time you probably didn't resist it. The only time you resisted temptation prior to your Christianity is because you were afraid of getting caught or of the social consequences. But typically, you really didn't care. But now that you're a Christian, now that you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, Now that you know the standard of God, and by the way, temptation implies a standard. Why am I being tempted? See, temptation means that I'm violating a certain standard, God's standard written on our hearts and also the Word of God. And so I can expect greater temptation now that I'm a Christian. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of me. And so if you don't expect temptation, you're going to get caught off guard. That means you got to know your weaknesses. You got to know what is your personal kryptonite. You got to know what is your Achilles heel. By the way, that word Achilles heel, that's from Greek mythology. Some of you have heard that expression before and maybe don't know the history of it, but Achilles was a warrior. And in Greek mythology, his mother was given a prophecy that her son would be wounded in battle and would die. And so in order to protect Achilles, his mother took him by his Achilles heel and she dipped him in the river Styx because the river Styx had protective waters. So she dipped him in the water and pulled him out. But he eventually died in battle and he was killed in the area of his Achilles. Why? Because that was the only area that wasn't covered by the protective waters. His mother was grabbing his heel, and therefore, it was immune to the water. And so, if you're going to expect temptation in your life, you got to know your personal kryptonite, and you got to know your Achilles heel. Second principle is this. We must stop blaming God for our temptations. Notice what he says in verse 13, and then in verses 16 through 18. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, not if he's tempted, but when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. 
Do not, verse 16, be deceived. My beloved brethren, every good thing given and every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The Jews to whom James was writing to, they were blaming God for their temptation. You say, how? Well, they were being tested, and as a result, that test turned into a temptation, and what they were doing is blaming God. Now, the Greek indicates here that we can blame God either directly or indirectly for our temptation. All of us knows what it means to blame God directly. God, why did you tempt me in this situation? Well, James is going to say God doesn't tempt, as we're going to see in a minute, but here is the one that we often get sucked into, and that is this. We blame God indirectly for our temptations. For example, God, if you didn't allow me to be born in poverty, I would not have resorted to drug dealing. I would not have resorted to stealing. I would not have resorted to gambling. You see, that's blaming God indirectly. God didn't make you gamble. He didn't make you steal. He didn't make you deal drugs. But you're saying, God, you created the environment that led me to do that. Or God, you know that I was sexually molested as a child. How do you not expect me to be sexually immoral? How do you expect me not to look at pornography? You're the one who allowed me to be sexually molested, and people get mad at God. You see, that's blaming God indirectly. Or God, when I was six years old, I began to develop same-sex attraction. I didn't ask for it. I just noticed that I was attracted to men. Now, I'm not talking about myself here. I want to make that very clear. But some person's going to say, I got these desires, God. They must have come from you. Therefore, how can you blame me for turning to a homosexual lifestyle? You see, that's blaming God indirectly. And James makes it very clear that you and I are to stop blaming God for our temptations, whether directly or indirectly. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that God tempted Jesus? If God doesn't tempt anybody... Doesn't the Bible say God tempted Jesus? Listen to Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Another translation says the Spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. That verse says that God directly through the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. Well, the Greek word there, parasmos, means tested. You see, God tested Jesus. It was the devil that took the test and turned it into a temptation. See, the goal is different. God tests us so that we will overcome. Satan tempts us in order that we may fail. When I was growing up, my mom would take me to the priest's house, and I would swim in the pool. And I had swimming lessons that I learned at the time. Well, imagine after my swimming lessons, if my dad took me and he threw me into the pool and he said, swim to the other side. 
You know why my dad would test me in that way? My dad would test me, not that I would drown, but that I would swim to the other side. See, my dad's motive in testing me was to get me to the other side of the pool. On the other hand, if he threw me in the pool that I would drown, his motive would be evil. That's exactly what Satan does. His goal is not to test you, it is to tempt you that you may fail. Now, there's two reasons why James gives here why we should not blame God for our temptations. Number one, God is holy. Look at verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James says, stop blaming God for your temptations, directly or indirectly. Number one, God is holy. He cannot tempt anybody. God is untemptable by his nature. He is holy, so God is not drawn to evil. God never gets tempted to have an evil thought. God never gets tempted to do anything evil. Therefore, if God is untemptable, why would he tempt us? Secondly, he says, don't blame God for your temptations directly or indirectly, not only because God is holy, but God is good. Notice, if you will, verses 16 and 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, you're deceived if you blame God for your temptations. He says, stop being deceived. Every, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, verse 18 He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among all that he created. He's saying, look, God doesn't tempt you. Don't blame God. God can't tempt you because God is holy. And secondly, God is good. Look what he says here. God only gives good gifts in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. That simply means that God is the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God doesn't change. Temptation comes and it goes. It is volatile. God, on the other hand, is constant. God is steady. He's not like his creation. And he only gives good gifts. You see, temptation sent by the devil is a solicitation to do evil. God will not tempt you ever to do evil because he is good. The Bible says he only gives us good gifts. What is one of the good gifts that he's given us? There's many things that we could talk about, but for the sake of time, James says here in verse 18, here's one of his good gifts. In the exercise of his will... He brought us forth by the word of truth. What does that mean? It means you were born again when you heard the word of the gospel and you believed it. You were born again into the family of God. And the reason why you were born again is God gave you the gift of salvation. And notice what he says here. 
so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what that's saying? It's a great verse. It's saying this, when God saved you, when God regenerated you, and he recreated you on the inside and gave you a new nature, that is a picture of what God is going to do to his creation in the future. In other words, you and I are the first fruits of what God is going to do in the future when he recreates this universe. We are living models, we are living testimonies of how God is going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. We are the first fruits of that. Why? Because God transformed you. So James says, don't blame God for your temptations. Most of us don't do that here directly. But I don't know about you, but there's times where I've caught myself blaming God indirectly. And he says, don't do it directly. Don't do it indirectly. Why? Because God is holy. God will never tempt you directly or indirectly. And secondly, God is good. He only sends good gifts. And one of those good gifts is he has made you alive spiritually. You have become a child of God. Well, there's a third principle that he gives here. The first one is expect to be tempted. Secondly, stop blaming God for your temptation. Thirdly, deal with the source of your temptation. If God is not the source and we can't blame him, what is the source of our temptation? Notice verse 13. But each one is tempted when by Here it is, his own evil desire. God is not the source of temptation. The source of temptation, listen carefully, is you. It's like the cartoon Pogo, where he says, we have met the enemy and it is us. We are the enemy. Now, James here doesn't mention the devil as the source of temptation, but we know that the devil is called the tempter and he is one of the sources of temptation. We also know that the world system, which is run by Satan, is another source of temptation. You see it all the time on the Internet, billboards, uh, different places that you can go to, Mardi Gras. I used to go to South Beach. It was flooded with temptation when I lived in Florida. James doesn't mention the devil or the world system. He mentions our fallen nature. It's called the old man. It's called the flesh. It's called our fallen nature. You see, you and I inherited a fallen nature from our parents, and it goes all the way back to Adam, and our flesh is what tempts us on a regular basis. It draws us in. For example, this week, my internet went down. Have you ever had the unpleasant experience of trying to figure out how to get back online? And so I was busy, I was under pressure, I wasn't in the mood to have to deal with this. So I spent an hour wasting my time trying to figure out, unplugging this, unplugging that, didn't work, so I finally called up Spectrum. Now at this point, I was temptable, because I was very impatient. And I said before I got on the phone, all right, Mike, you are going to preach on temptation this week, let's see what you do. And so I dealt with the technician, 
And I was patient. I didn't get upset. I didn't get angry. Because in times past, when I've dealt with people, let's say, in another country, and I couldn't understand them, what happens? You end up going off on the person. You see, what drew me to want to be impatient? Why did I struggle with wanting to get angry? It's the fallen man. It's our nature. For some of you, it may be pornography. You're tempted to get on your phone or maybe late at night and look at porn. For some of you, it may be loneliness. And so what you do is you settle for a lesser relationship and you start dating a non-believer. And then you engage in immorality because you have a deep need to be loved. We all have areas. We all have triggers. And James here says, you got to know the source of temptation. God is not the source. He's holy and he's good. You and I are the source. And you listen, because you have a fallen nature, there's going to be a tug of war that goes on on the inside of you. There's this back and forth. Your fallen nature, the power of it has been broken at the moment of salvation. But even though sin's power has been broken, you and I still have this tug of war between the old man and the new man, our fallen nature and the new nature. I remember years ago, I was at, I was at a beach and we were doing one of those big tug of war things. We had like 10 people on one side, 10 people on the other side. And then, of course, you had a referee and they said, go. And both sides would pull back and forth. Eventually, my side lost, and all of us, all 10 of us, got pulled in the other direction. Listen, whatever nature you feed is going to determine the direction that you go in. If you feed your fallen nature and you stimulate those desires, you're going to fall into sin and temptation. To use another analogy, years ago, I had another computer issue, and I couldn't figure out what was going on? So I called up the company, and their technician said this to me. If you allow me to go into your computer, I can take over your computer, and I can control it remotely, and I can fix the problem. I said, sure. So they sent me a link. I downloaded the link, and sure enough, it blew my mind. A person that lived in another state literally got a hold of my mouse and they took my cursor and they began to control my computer and they fixed the problem. They totally hijacked my computer. You know, that's exactly what you and I need with our fallen nature. If we are the problem, if sin is the problem on the inside of us and we're drawn to sin, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to hijack us. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to take over the computer of our life and control us so that we will walk in the Spirit. And doesn't Paul say that in Galatians 5? Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So what can you and I do to deal with temptation? Number one, expect it. It's going to happen. You need to be on guard. You need to know your weaknesses. You need to know your triggers. And you need to avoid them. Secondly... If you're going to deal with temptation, stop blaming God, either directly or indirectly. And thirdly, 
recognize the source of temptation. It is not God, it is you. Here's a fourth principle that James gives us if we're going to deal with temptation, and this one is critical. We must recognize the process of temptation. Temptation generally follows a process. Now, I realize that sometimes temptation happens instantaneous. We don't walk through this four-step process that James gives us. But generally, temptation will follow this process. And it's very important that you nip it at the beginning of the process. Here is the four-step process. And what I'm going to do is use an illustration in my life when I was in high school. This process is going to be played out when I ended up cheating in high school and I got in trouble. The first step is desire. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed, here it is, by his own lust. You see, lust is desire. It's not just sexual lust. It's any type of desire, any type of urge, any type of impulse that I have that I know what I'm looking at is wrong or what I want is wrong. Now, you want to know what the key to dealing with temptation is in this process? You've got to deal with temptation at the desire level because desire lurks beneath the surface. Many times it's unconscious. We all have bents. We all have desires. The world system in which we live stimulates certain impulses. Looking at the Internet, watching television, smelling a person that goes by that smells very nice, that can stimulate temptation. You've got to starve the desire. The Bible says to flee from the desires, but here's the problem. We often flirt with our desires. And so the first step is you got to deal with the desire. That's where temptation starts. Now, when I was in high school, I wasn't a good student. All I cared about was football. And I didn't want to do my homework. In fact, I viewed my homework like I liked my steak, rare and not well done. And so I was in English class. It was my senior year. I had to write a term paper or an essay. I can't remember what it was. And I didn't want to write it. So I came up with this novel idea. It started with a desire. I figured when the teacher wasn't looking, I wanted to steal someone else's term paper that he had in his filing cabinet. This is the day, obviously, before computers. And so it started with a desire. I wanted to pass English, and I was lazy, and I didn't want to do the work. There was that impulse. There was that desire. Now, I should have nipped it right there in the bud, but I didn't. I allowed my imagination to run wild. And that leads me to the next step in this process of temptation. You go from desire to deception. Desire is an emotion. Deception happens in the mind. Look what he says in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. You know what that word in the Greek means? It's used of trapping an animal. What happens when an animal is trapped? You set the bait, and the animal thinks it's getting a meal, but in the end, it's getting trapped. You see, there's the deception. And then he says here, they're not only carried away, but they're enticed. That word enticed 
means to bait the hook. Now, I understand what that means because growing up in South Florida, I used to fish a lot in the Keys. And we would go out and we would put certain bait on hook and we would throw it out there. And you know what I found? Certain fish like certain type of bait. The fish is thinking it's getting a delicious meal when in the end it's going to get hooked. In fact, I remember one time I went out to the Keys and the fish were biting so much. And listen, if you like to fish, when the fish are biting a lot, I'll tell you what, it's glorious. I didn't have to put bait on the hook. I could literally throw out the hook and the fish were biting. They thought the hook was a meal. But notice the deception here. It goes from desire to deception, carried away and enticed. That's the second step in temptation. Deception happens in the mind. I rationalize what I want to do. I justify what I want to do. So when I saw the need to steal a paper and plagiarize, I began to rationalize. I was deceived. I said, I owe it to myself. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail and get in trouble with my parents. I was deceived at that point. And you know, ultimately, when we give into temptation, it is because we bite the lie of Satan, self, and the system. We think that what we want is ultimately going to satisfy us. We think we owe it to ourselves. There's many forms of rationalization. Oh, just this one time, we are deceived. Desire happens on an emotional level. Deception happens on an intellectual level. And so listen, at this stage, you must deal with desire and you must debunk the deception in your mind, the rationalization. Well, that leads to the third step, and that is disobedience. He says in verse 15, then after desire has conceived, now he's switching the metaphor. He went from a hunting and fishing metaphor to here, he goes to a birthing metaphor. After desire, verse 15, has conceived. In other words, when your desire makes love with Satan and the system, what happens? It gives birth to sin. When you don't nip the desire, you don't flee from the desire. When you rationalize the deception, it gives birth to disobedience. In other words, you disobey God in your thoughts or in your actions. What happened to me that day? Well, my particular teacher wasn't good at controlling his class. A bunch of students were surrounding his desk, and they were distracting him. And immediately, I went in for the kill. I went to his filing cabinet, opened it up, and I pulled the paper out. I didn't know which one I was grabbing. It was another student probably from a previous year or another semester. And so I took the paper, Neville Shewitt on the beach, I think was the name of it, and I disobeyed God. I wanted that paper. And so I took it and I went home and I copied it verbatim. And then I turned it in. And that leads me to the final step in this process. You go from desire to deception 
to disobedience, and finally death. Look at verse 15. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. And the implication here is it multiplies itself. Isn't that true with temptation? When you give into it, it multiplies itself exponentially. Notice the final step here is death. What does he mean by death? He's not saying the moment you give into sin, you're going to die on the spot, although that's happened. Ananias and Sapphira. But most of the time, we don't die physically. He's talking here probably about spiritual death. My fellowship with God is broken. Also, he could be talking about temporal consequences. There are consequences when we yield to temptation. Some of the consequences are mild. We feel conviction of sin. Sometimes the consequences can cost us physically, financially, and emotionally, and relationally. What happened to me? Weeks later, my teacher gave back all the papers And I had on my paper an A. And then it was crossed out with an F. And he wrote on the bottom, this paper was copied by somebody else or it was plagiarized. And I got sent to the office. Another student had copied the same paper. I think I had given it to him. I wasn't the sharpest tack in the box. We both got God got called down to the dean's office. And I remember he looked at me and he said, look, what do you do with this? And I said, I don't do anything with it. I'm guilty. I said, I cheated. My buddy denied it. He said, I don't know how that happened. And I'm looking at him thinking, what are you talking about, dude? You know what you did. So I got in trouble. You see what happened? I rationalized. I was deceived. I thought I wouldn't get caught. You say, wait a minute. People give in all the time and they don't get caught. Yes, but eventually they will. And if not in this life, God will expose it. So what is the process of temptation? James says if you're going to deal with temptation, you got to recognize the process. And here is the process. It starts with a desire. It starts with an impulse. I have a need that needs to be met. It could be physical. It could be emotional, whatever it is. You've got to nip it at the desire level. Starve the desire. That's the hardest part. If you can resist for 10 or 15 minutes, they say the temptation will go away. Then if you don't, you start to be deceived. You rationalize. It doesn't matter. Who cares? No one will see. I won't get caught. I'll do it this time. You know, the consequences aren't that bad. And then that leads to, thirdly, disobedience, and then disobedience leads to death. There are always consequences. And listen, one of the things that helps deter me, and I know you, is I think through the consequences. If I do this, what is the backlash of this? Now, unfortunately, we don't do that for every temptation, do we? So how do we deal with temptation, according to James? He was writing to Jewish Christians. They were being tested. Many of them were poor. They were being dispossessed from their houses. They were working for the rich, and they weren't being paid, according to chapter 5. And their tests became temptations. James says, 
expect it. Not if you're going to be tempted, but when. That'll cause you to be on guard. Secondly, stop blaming God for your temptation, either directly or indirectly. God does not tempt you. Why? Because he is holy, he is untemptable, therefore he can't tempt people. And secondly, God is good. God only gives good gifts. He doesn't give temptation. Thirdly, deal with the source of your temptation. If God is not the temptation, who's the source? It's you. Yes, it is the devil. Yes, it is the system. But you are the problem. And listen, if the devil did not exist, you still would struggle with sin. Why? Because you have a fallen nature. And then finally, recognize the process of temptation. It starts with a desire, then it goes to deception, then it goes to disobedience, and then it goes to death. Well, as we close, let me give you one last principle in dealing with temptation, and that is this. James doesn't talk about this, but other parts of the Bible addresses this, and that is this. Implement other biblical strategies to deal with temptation. What are some other tools, what are some other weapons that you and I can use to deal with temptation? Let me give you a few of them. Number one, we know this one, meditate on the word of God. Psalm 119.11, how can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. If you are not washing daily in the water of God's word, you are more likely to give into temptation. Why? Because the Bible is a resource. It is a sword of the spirit. Secondly, pray. You need to have an active prayer life. You don't just need to pray in emergency situations. A lot of Christians view prayer as the spare tire on their car. They only use it in emergency situations. In Matthew chapter 26, when the disciples on the night before Jesus was going to die, they were in the garden. It was late at night. They were tired. What did Jesus say to the disciples? He said, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. We got to be people of prayer. Thirdly, be accountable to someone in the church or someone you know who loves the Lord. James chapter 5 says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. You see, you and I have to have people that we can share our honest struggles with without being judged. Someone who will hold me accountable. Number four, resist the devil. The devil is the tempter. It says that in James 4, resist him and he'll flee from you. You say, wait, how do I know when it's the devil? How do I know when it's the flesh that's tempting me? You often do not know. Sometimes you may get a strong sense that it's a satanic attack, but either way, you have to resist it using the word of God. Another thing, and this one's very important, maintain good physical health and good emotional health. Why? Because when you are depleted physically, when your battery is worn down physically, when you are depleted emotionally and mentally, and you're hurting, you are more vulnerable to temptation. And so you have to take care of yourself physically, and you have to take care of yourself emotionally. Because when you don't, you are more vulnerable to attack. And then here's another thing as we close. Confess and repent of your sin. You're going to blow it. Now, remember, the Bible promises us victory. We don't have to sin. Sin's power has been broken. 
but we're inevitably going to sin because we still live in a fallen world. We are still fallen. So when you blow it, confess it. And here's the key. Are you listening? Beep your horns. There you go. Here's the key. It's not enough just to confess it. You've got to repent of it. You know what that means? Get rid of the computer if it's pulling you down with porn. Cut off the relationship if that relationship is pulling you down. Stop hanging with that person if they're causing you to sin. You see, confession is easy. It's repentance that's tougher. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your eye causes you to stumble, what does he say? Gouge it out. Figure of speech. Take extreme measures to deal with your temptation. And I would add one more. Get to the root. Too many times we deal with the fruit and we don't deal with the root. What is the root? Why do you keep going back to the same temptation over and over? Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of these simple principles, and yet we still get tripped up. Every one of us here struggles with temptation. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the victory in Christ Jesus. And I want you to think right now about the three temptations you battle with most. Is it pride, lust, greed, immorality, porn? Maybe it's a critical tongue. You're negative. You're critical all the time. Maybe you're a Debbie Downer. We all have our temptations. What are they? Ask God right now to give you the grace to deal with the root and not just the fruit. Now, here's the good news. We all have to battle our weaknesses when we blow it. God forgives us over and over again. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more.